you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, nobody's writing. We're not getting into anything today. This is a no-read kind of show. I threatened to do this again in episode 99. See, the only two episodes where I've not read anything and discussed writing literature were episode 50 and episode 99 to celebrate those milestones. And I wanted to take the time to make good on my threat to have another episode of the podcast where I didn't read anything and just talked. People seem to enjoy that. Although, honestly, I don't know if they do or not because literally no one talks to me about the fucking podcast, but that's fine. Tonight I'm drinking Coke Zero as I talk tonight with all of the radiance of a blossoming rosebud. Tonight... My wife and I got ice cream from Dairy Queen, so I'm a little jittery from the, the sugar intake because we don't really eat a whole lot of sugar anymore because I'm kind of a fat ass now. Not really. Although, my friend Zev called me Fluffy, which was very nice of him. He also said I was hot as fuck, so he's sending me mixed signals there. But anyway, how's everyone out there doing tonight? It's Saturday night here. It's 9.21. Momentarily, after my wife finishes her breathing treatment, she's going to have me start her a bath, so I'm going to have to take a quick break. But you don't really need to know that, do you? My wife has asthma. So throughout this whole pandemic, we've been very scared that she's going to get corona, COVID-19, because a simple cold can put her in the emergency room. And the emergency room is not where you want to be in this time of the, in, at, at any point in time, really. But right now, during the pandemic, the ERs are overflowing constantly, as far as I know. And I don't know if we can really count on this idea that Omicron is somehow less deadlier than the other variants because there's still people getting it, there's still people dying. Until that number is zero, I think that we should all be a bit more vigilant. We should all get vaccinated. We should all wear masks. We should all social distance. We should all stay the fuck away from each other. Today, we were in Bath and Body Works, or as I like to call it, Bath and Beyond or whatever. And there were people literally just coming right up on us in there, not wearing masks. We had our mask on, and we were minding our own business, but... People don't know the the meaning of personal space. They don't seem to understand that social distancing, at the very least, works to keep transmission of all diseases down. It's been two years since I published Demise of the Trinity, and it's been two years just about since I started this podcast, which is insane, isn't it? With my massive following. What's funny is that I didn't want to talk about Twitter on here. Eventually, I will talk about Twitter, but I've already talked about the fact that I've got all these followers, but sometimes there's there have been days where you just get no interaction from anybody, and then you'll tweet something very random, and everyone will latch on to you. But I have a new album out. I mentioned this in the last episode, but you probably didn't listen to it because you, know, you have good taste in literature. But... 
I have a new album out called Stuck in the Elevator under the name Lurking Vowel. And I'm very proud of this album. I don't know if it's good, but I do like it. I've listened to it a few times myself. And the opening track, I just wanted to talk about this real quick. The opening track features the gorilla amp that I mentioned a few episodes ago. I have a friend who's serving time in prison, and in 2011, actually it's 2010, he let me borrow this little gorilla amp, which is notorious for sounding bad, but of course I wanted to use it to make cool, interesting sounds, and that's exactly what I did back then, and I was never able to match that sound again. And essentially what I'm talking about is a fuzz distortion going through this little amp that breaks up very interestingly. So, if you want to hear that amp, you listen to Testament to Gorillas, the opening track to Stuck in the Elevator. It's very, very interesting sounding. But the rest of the album is either my Roland Jazz Chorus amp or my Line 6 Pod Go, so it's directly into my laptop. These are all technical things that you probably don't give a shit about. And there's a lot of acoustic guitar on it, so if you like acoustic guitar, check it out. There's lots of acoustic guitar drama going on. Ivy in her long shirt. That's a reference to Logan and Ivy's channel on TikTok. Ivy's this little girl. She's a baby, and she's adorable. And she wears long boy shirts. Her mother literally goes into places like Target, Walmart, and thrift shops and buy, buys her daughter boys, boys small, I think, she said. But they, they look very long on her, and she's adorable. Of course, there's always a, a Scott Aukerman reference on these albums here lately. And there's Rodchester, which is a character he does on some of his podcasts. I did not have a particularly interesting day. And I'm done plugging anything, so I don't think I'm going to spend the whole episode talking about my own shit. Although, I'm still working on my fourth novel, which doesn't have a title. But it features Birch from my other novels, so... Yeah, if you're unfamiliar with my other novels, I suggest you go out and read them. Well, there was a plug. But anyway, I've been working on this novel, having just finished my 54th album, I'm studying French for an exam that I have to take in order to get my master's. I've, I'm currently downloading a bunch of movies so I can revisit films that are on my, my oral exam list and the texts that coincide with them, like the Shakespeare text. The thing about Shakespeare is that you really don't have to read Shakespeare anymore because there are so many great adaptations of his work, and you have to keep in mind... What's funny about Shakespeare plays is that we read them in English classes as if they are novels, and yet they were meant, they were written for the stage. They were meant to be performed. Shakespeare didn't sit down and, and think of his plays as divine literature. He may have thought, about, thought that about his sonnets, which are okay, but I took a Shakespeare class in 2020, right before the pandemic started. And the only thing I really learned in that class was that I do not like Shakespeare. I don't know if you'll notice a difference in the room sound in here, but I bought a rug today. I went to at home and bought a very nice rug. And I don't know if you 
understand the excitement of being a 30-year-old man and buying a rug for a room, but it is is exquisite. I suggest all of you go out and buy rugs for a room in your house if you can afford it. This one was only 100 bucks. At Home has some very affordable stuff. Some of it's overpriced, sure, but they have great deals on things. Last weekend, or maybe it was earlier this week, I bought a a couple of new pans from there. I was very excited about that. Always excited to get kitchenware these days. I'm very boring and domesticated by my wife. A few years ago, in 2015, I bought a skillet from Kmart. I'd never done such a thing in my life before. I still have that skillet, by the way. I'm very sentimental about the things that I bought from Kmart before it closed down. We spent the day watching The Sopranos once we got home. And every time I watch a show like The Sopranos, it inspires me to write, especially stuff with emotional resonance, and I sometimes feel that I'm unable to do that. And I I managed to do it a few times in Surviving New America and Demise of the Trinity. I don't know about Price of the Trinity. Price of the Trinity is from the perspective of a psychopath. So... I don't know how you can really think of Ken Price as someone who's going to reflect on things on an emotional level when he has almost no reaction to his mother committing suicide in that novel. I had a dream last night, actually it was this morning, that someone illustrated a graphic novel for Surviving New America, but in the dream... As excited as I was, I noticed that there was a lot of scenes with Satan, and he was drawn like Tim Curry Satan from Legend, which is not at all how I, I wrote Satan in my novels. But there there he was, and I was very proud that someone did that. And I, was, I woke up very disappointed, because now and then I'll have a dream about something that I really want that I didn't know that I wanted. I remember when I was a kid, I had a dream about... Game Boy games all the time that didn't really exist, like a new Pokemon game, version purple, or a Mario game that had had come out that didn't really exist. I was really into Mario as a kid. I just opened Twitter as I was exporting the first part of this podcast, and I saw I saw an advertisement for an NFT account because The funny thing about Twitter is that you don't have to have really any followers, but you can purchase ad space, and it will be forced upon everyone. And it was an NFT account. I understand what NFTs are. They're stupid, but I understand what they are. A lot of people, they don't get it, but... On the Chasing Tone podcast with Brian Wampler, he was talking about NFTs, I think, last year. And there was a lot of talk about bands, for instance, buying NFTs related to their work so that they could keep making money from their music. And it was discussed as this way to make money from your art in the future. And now it's the dumbest fucking shit ever. And... There's a lot of discussion about what it's all really about. Essentially, it's this bogus way of investing your money 
that isn't Bitcoin, that isn't a stock. It's just putting your money into a product to say that you can own it, but it's something that literally anyone can experience. It's not like buying the Mona Lisa and putting it in a museum for everyone to watch or look at rather. Nobody watches the Mona Lisa unless there's some porn video called Mona Lisa out there, in which case I'm sure everyone's watching that. Not that long ago, I was interviewed on the the Jazz House podcast and Dana Brown was kind enough to invite me on there and her handle on Twitter is at drbwrites16, and she asked me a question on Twitter. Well, she brought up a topic. I feel like the differences in screenwriting and novel writing aren't discussed enough. And as someone who's written both, although you've never seen a movie that I've written, uh, unless you've watched one of my short films on YouTube, which that hardly qualifies as screenwriting, but my first novella that I released, Claire's Novel, was based on a screen screenplay that I wrote while I was in college. I wrote several in college. haven't written a screenplay since. But it's actually a great way to draft things because it's all dialogue and very little action. So if you want to write a, a novella or a short story but you're having difficulty with your prose or just getting ideas out. Spouting out dialogue is the easiest form of writing that I know because when I started writing, I would have pages and pages and pages of dialogue, which I was told by several creative writing professors and teachers that is bad. You're supposed to break up that dialogue there, there was a, one of my, my creative writing professors who said that you shouldn't have more than uh, three sentences in uh, quotation marks for dialogue, that dialogue should only be for communicating information to the reader, etc., etc. But having just read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, where there are lots of you know bits of dialogue... I had a hard time believing that such a rule was ever actually stated by anyone besides that creative writing professor. And you hear about these screenwriters like, I think, Aaron Sorkin, who write these very prose-like and serious screenplays, and they expect the actors to adhere to their lines without any deviation. And there are some directors who also write that will stop an actor in mid-sentence and say, hey, there was a comma there, you used a period when you spoke. There are people who are very anal about it. And then if you're going to hire someone like Bill Murray for your, your movie, you can pretty much just throw your screenplay out because he's going to improvise everything. The other novella that I released called A Painter is also based on a screenplay that I wrote in a very dark period of my life in 2015. And I'm very proud of the the novella, and I was very proud of the screenplay, although when I revisited it, it was very whiny and kind of pretentious, even though the protagonist, well, one of the protagonists, there are two protagonists, the man, can't remember his name, August was his name, he was very pretentious because he was a painter. But 
converting that from a screenplay into a novella essentially involved using the the novella the screenplay as the outline for the novella and eventually i deviated from that and i also had to add things because it is a different form of writing so with novellas with short stories with novels you want to add details about characters past unless it's a very short short story because without those details no one's born 18 years old you know they have things that make them who they are otherwise you've got a a, a poorly written character you have to involve bits of a character's past in order to know them to an extent. Of course, you can do that in a screenplay too, but you don't really have to. There are plenty of movies out there that don't have flashbacks. They, If they do tell you anything about a character's past, it's obviously through dialogue. But as a writer, it's not always cool to admit that you're influenced by things that aren't writing in the traditional sense. I'm very in inspired by movies and TV shows. I just mentioned The Sopranos. The Sopranos is, is essentially a six to seven season long movie. And it's fantastic. But I got a lot of ideas from Breaking Bad too. I get a lot of ideas from comic books when I write. I love Batman and there are some great examples of Batman like The Dark Knight Returns, or Year One, or The Long Halloween. These are texts that you could teach in a college course because they are very well written. There's some Batman text, well, Batman comics, I should say, that I feel are overrated, like Hush. I didn't think that Hush was very good as a comic. I definitely didn't like it as an animated movie. The Long Halloween two-part animated movie was very good. Also, The Dark Knight Returns. Year One was okay. And The Killing Joke had a lot of added stuff in it that was unnecessary, but overall I enjoyed it. The Killing Joke is, is sort of like my Bible when it comes to Batman and how much I love the Joker and the kind of villain that we all aspire to writing. I've never written a villain that was like the Joker, though. I had a nod to the Joker in one of the Nero short stories that be sort of became a novella where he talks about a guy named Joaquin. But Joaquin appears in one scene and it's at the end of what he did wrong, in a sense. A very cool follower of mine, Dustin Driver, you can find him on Twitter at Dustin underscore Driver. He asked me if you could have any of your characters' powers, which would you have and why? Now, the funny thing about the characters that I've written that have quote-unquote powers is that they all kind of have the same powers because the Trinity in my novels, they're all invincible. That's what makes them part of the Trinity. But... I think it would be really cool to be invincible to a degree, but it would probably turn me into a complete asshole. And that's the nature of the power that I, that I give these characters because power, it gives you leeway. So let's say that I get pulled over by a police officer and I'm bulletproof 
And if I feel like I can go on a power trip and I can get out of the vehicle and he can shoot at me and I just grab the gun from him and then I shoot him because he can't kill me, well, that would be very bad and it would be very tempting for a lot of people. I have been reading some Wolverine comics again and there are so many times where he lets people off or he doesn't use his claws and I'm like, why? That's part of who you are, but he doesn't immediately resort to violence in in many cases. And he could kill people, too. I mean, that's part of who he is. And yet there are many times where he just lets people go. It's, he's not, a, he's not a, a comic book character like Batman who's known for not killing people, which is totally false, by the way. But Wolverine is supposed to be a slightly unhinged and oftentimes completely unhinged character who is invulnerable to the point where he's been blasted into gunk and then somehow reformed into a person. Another follower of mine, OCD... Alvi, I'm guessing that's OCD Dalvi, brought up metafiction. When I think of metafiction, I think of the TV show Community, which is one of my favorite comfort shows. And I was just thinking about that today because my wife put on a, that, I think her name's Kate, Kate Nash, the lady who was on Glow. She's really cute, but she was a musician before she was an actress. And I think of Abed constantly breaking the fourth wall. But in terms of books, I think of American Psycho. I think more of movies like Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill, these Tarantino-style films that poke the fourth wall. They're sort of turning around and winking at the audience. Because... The, the whole meta quality of postmodern literature, while I would think of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison as a postmodern novel, I don't think of it as a meta novel, whereas American Psycho definitely has meta qualities to it. Slaughterhouse-Five does to a degree. But there's this self-awareness that goes on in these these works, and... It's something that I have tried to steer away from because if you do it too much, it gets really annoying because every time I watch a Scorsese film these days, it's like he's jerking off behind the camera because he's almost parroting his own style. I mean, The Wolf of Wall Street was essentially Goodfellas with all the the flavor stripped away. A few episodes ago, I mentioned that I watched The French Dispatch, and The French Dispatch is essentially Wes Anderson trying to make a Wes Anderson movie. It's almost like he forgot to make one, so he watched all of his movies, and he said, oh, I can do that again. And it was not very good, but there's a stylistic choice there. I mean, you could be like Stephen King and say that you're the god of your universe, and that kind of takes away the, the three-dimensional element of your work, though, because you make everyone in the book confined to your little world, which means 
everything that we're imagining in our heads as we read your book is now confined to this fictional universe where you're in charge of everything. We try as readers to stray away from thinking too much about the author when we read, I think. That's not always the case with writers like Bukowski where their writing is very much part of who they are because it's about their life. But, you know, when I read a book like All About the Benjamins by Zev Good, I'm not thinking about Zev Good the entire time. I'm trying to get into the story and understand the characters and their motivations and everything. And I'm trying to imagine them as real people. But if Zed were to suddenly say, well, in this fictional universe, I'm God, which means that the God of our universe doesn't exist in their universe, or if it does, it does so through this meta, this meta way where there's God and then there's Zev Good and then there's all these people that Zev Good creates that don't really exist. It's weird. I mean... Stephen King, I have so many bad things I could say about Stephen King. I won't. But the whole notion of being the god of your own universe, it it just, it strips away so much. So Dustin asked another question on Twitter. Have you also thought about the future of religion in the United States? Do you think we'll create another one like Mormonism, like Scientology, or those days of creating new religions behind us? I don't think that religion is ever going to die. And it's not because I myself have spiritual beliefs. It's because people are always going to want to rationalize things in a way that make them comprehensible in a metaphysical way. (laughs) I mean, the whole notion of God being this man in the sky with a beard, I, I don't believe that that's what God is, of course, but a person, most likely a man, wrote that first line in the the book of Genesis, maybe not the first line, but that Adam was created in the image of God, which I just don't believe. But we're always going to want to to make God someone that we can relate to. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the old Testament, he's this moody bitch and he's responsible for all the bad things in the world. I don't, I don't think that's fair to God, but if you're, if you're aware of any of anything that I've ever written, you'll know that demise of the Trinity is me struggling with the belief in God And now I have all these things in my life as I'm getting older that seem to be piling on me at the same time regarding Christianity and religion and and God. Because uh, I started reading Invisible Man, which has a lot of mentions of, of God in it, whether you realize it or not. My professor at the time was a minister, and I took interest in his his church to an extent. I didn't go to his church, but his church has a YouTube channel and I would watch his sermons and then midnight mass happened. And 
a lot of other things just kind of crept up on me. And over the years, I've had an interest in things in the Bible that I didn't have before. And every time I've read the Bible, I've had to have my phone or a laptop nearby because I have to Google every other thing that I read. You have to have a book to explain the book. And maybe I'm really dense and the Bible isn't really that difficult to understand. But I really do feel that it's a difficult to understand text. One of the reasons why people go to church is because the minister is acting as an interpreter of that text, which makes him relatively dangerous in a sense. And if you've ever seen the book of Eli, you know that the thing that they were fighting over was the Bible because it's a very powerful text. And if the person who has the only Bible is the one interpreting it, then you can bend people to your will because you can make them think that you're interpreting the will of God. But this this new novel that I'm writing, I don't want to talk too much about it because I know people don't give a shit, but it's very much me working through that. Not like Demise of the Trinity, but the, the paradox of religion and the way that people use religion as a weapon or a way to capitalize on people. Because everything in... America is a business. Everything. Healthcare. College. Hell, even public school to an extent. It's supposed to be government funded. And yet, the local high school is in million dollars of debt for the things that they've built. Why did they build this giant athletic complex for high school students to play football in? Why? They didn't need it, but they did it. Just because some of the football players have gone on to good colleges, and you can count on one hand how many have ended up in the NFL, and you can't count any of them who've lasted more than a few seasons, by the way, that doesn't mean that you can base a big part of your your infrastructure, your educational infrastructure around a sport. And yes, it brings in a lot of money because a lot of people come to watch high school football for some reason. How did I get on this fucking tangent about goddamn football? I don't care about football, obviously, but I don't know why people want to go to a game to watch 16-year-old boys play on a field. That's weird. In sports... It's a form of tribalism, this feeling of rooting for your pack and warfare. It's this instinct that people are fulfilling through sports, and it's boring as hell. Much like this podcast, I'm sure, but I was talking about religion, and the thing is is that religion is a tool. It's not just an organization. It's not just something that people feel on a spiritual level. You can feel spirituality, experience spirituality without adhering to a religion. From my perspective, if you're basing your beliefs on a religion, someone came to the conclusion 
of what rules and regulations and beliefs that religion has. If you don't believe me, get on the Wikipedia page for the belief in hell. Because Jews, Christians, and Muslims believe almost entirely different things about hell. Because most Jews don't believe in hell. Why? Because there's not a whole lot of evidence for it in the Bible. And Christians have, have misaligned and misinterpreted that text so much to the point where they use the fear of hell in order to make people come to church. And in turn, when you go to that church, you have to contribute to the church. You see what I'm saying? Hell is being used as propaganda, essentially. Because I don't, even though I've written books with hell and Satan, I don't know that I believe in either. Which brings me to another topic involving, you know, hell and using that as incentive to get people to be religious and come to church and whatever. But there's this marketing tactic used in the realm of musicians, specifically guitar for me. And when I started playing guitar, I knew nothing about guitar products. I just knew that I wanted to play guitar. I even thought that in order to make the different sounds that I heard on albums, that I would need a different guitar for every single one of those sounds which is not true. I thought that in order to have distortion, you needed a guitar that had distortion. I didn't know that uh, you could play pretty much everything on one guitar. You can't really play acoustic guitar on an electric guitar, despite the fact that there are emulators and there are piezo pickups out there. But you get my point. And... I fell victim to this very hard because not because I was a dumb shit, but because they've created this notion of guitar tone. Now, for those of you who don't know or haven't listened to the episode that I did long ago involving a, a short story about a guitar pedal maker Guitar tone is the sound of your guitar through the amplifier. And you alter that sound through either different amplifiers, different guitar pickups, or guitar effects. Now, I've been playing, God, over 15 years now, I want to say. But... Actually, holy shit, I've been playing longer than that. I don't want to do the math on the podcast. I'm boring you enough. But I'm sitting here, and I'm only a few feet away from my pedal board, and it's full of Wampler pedals. And that awesome son of a bitch, Brian Wampler, got me back into collecting guitar pedals again. Because when I first started out, I thought that you needed a bunch of guitar pedals I thought that's just what you did. One of the first things that I did within the first year playing guitar was buy, I think I bought three guitar pedals 
and the same day. I, I mean, it was so unnecessary. The two that I remember buying were the Boss DS1, which a lot of newbie players buy. And I bought an H2O chorus slash echo unit. So it was a chorus and delay in one pedal. And it was a pretty awesome pedal, and I regret getting rid of it because it had one of the best chorus sounds ever. I didn't care much about the, the echo. And eventually I got over that bug because I was using my Digitech pedal to record direct into my laptop. So I didn't really need a bunch of effects pedals. But then I started listening to Chasing Tone and I liked Brian Wampler so much. So I was like, okay, I want to try one of his pedals. I didn't say I wanted to buy a bunch of pedals. I just said, let me try one of his pedals. And before that, the only pedal that I remember buying was a fuzz face because Eric Johnson used a fuzz face and I bought it at the same time I bought my, my Strat. And then I start listening to this podcast in 2020, a year after buying that pedal. I had other pedals, sure, but I bought the Wampler Tumnus and I was like, wow, this makes my tone sound really fucking good. And it does something so basic and yet you can, you can use it for so many different things. It's a Swiss army knife. And then I bought his velvet fuzz pedal because I had a dream about it and it's on my board right now. And then a year later, I've got 12 fucking Wampler pedals and they're not cheap by the way. And every time I've had an extra little bit of money, I've thought about buying another one of his pedals. The only other manufacturer of pedals, there are two other companies that I've bought pedals from electro harmonics because they make the synth nine and they make the big muff. I've got two big muffs and I've got two of their synthesizer pedals and I have bought three Walrus audio pedals. And if you are out there and you're scratching your head wondering why I'm going on about this or why anyone would want to spend money on these different sound effects, well, you're clearly smarter than me because I have spent money that I could have saved up for a guitar. I have spent money that I could have saved up and bought a used car. So I opened Twitter again and blew the rider. Their handle on Twitter is at the blue mind girl ask how important is it for writers to build an online presence or a big following on social media before releasing titles or after boy is my opinion on this going to be polarizing because as you know, I have almost 13, 13,000 followers on Twitter. I do not have 13,000 sales, though. The tweet for Demise of the Trinity, when I released it, got, I think, over a thousand likes and a, a hundreds of retweets. It did not get that many in sales. It was a quote-unquote best-selling novel on Amazon. However... That did not amount to me being able to quit my day job and write full time. So, I can tweet something 
and it will get no likes and no interactions. I'll eventually delete it, usually, and tweet something else because with Twitter, you have to to keep a momentum. I've tweeted every single day since I started my account in 2019. Every single day. There are some days where I tweet less than others. There's some days where I get less interaction than others. But I do this for the sake of book sales. Because I want more people to be interested in my books. Again, I don't have 13,000 people interested in reading my books. Not at all. I guarantee you a lot of those people have followed me because I followed them back. So they could up their own follower number. And for the people who are following me, who actually interact with me, they're more interested in my sense of humor or my occasional guitar videos, my tweets about my wife, whatever. They're not interested in my books at all. So people can say that you need to build a social media following. I have sold more books as a result of having a Twitter and advertising my books on Twitter and just being trying to be a cool guy on Twitter, just being myself really because I'm a, a bitchy person. And I have indeed sold books as a result of having a Twitter. Have I sold anything that correlates to my following count? Hell no. There are best-selling authors who have less followers than me. And there are a lot of posers on Twitter, too. There are a lot of people who say that they're best-selling authors or award-winning authors, and they have nothing to back up their claims. They're full of shit. And there's a lot of ego on Twitter. There's so many negatives to Twitter, I think about deleting my Twitter every single day. And I've been thinking that for the past two years. And I've already gone on and on and on about Twitter on this podcast. But since it got mentioned in this tweet... Uh, Instagram is another social media platform that is dying, by the way. But because there have been a few success stories, authors clamored over there. There is a person who follows me on Twitter who has a TikTok that is humongous. And I'm going to say something that's going to ruffle some feathers, but the reason why their, their TikTok page is so popular is because they're attractive. I guarantee you that they don't have a hundred thousand people buying their books. Not even close. I've said this on the podcast once. I'll say it again. I could delete my Twitter tonight and most people wouldn't give a shit. The people who did give a shit would stop giving a shit in at least a week. If even they would not miss me. I guarantee you. And if I've, I've made those joke tweets about deleting my Twitter before I've <laughs> funny thing is, is that there are a lot of people on Twitter who take everything at face value because they've never heard of something called, called sarcasm. And I can, I can tweet something like I'm deleting my Twitter in five minutes. People will say, Oh no, don't go or uh, sorry to see you go. Shit like that. And it's so fake. I mean, I, I made a tweet about how I'm tired of how toxic everyone on Twitter is being, so I'm starting a Facebook. 
<laughs> it was an obvious joke. But what's funny is that this one guy tweeted at me and said, Hey, I couldn't find your Facebook link in your link tree. I wanted to add you. I've, I've had people try to add me on Facebook, and I've had to turn away their, their friend request because that's a whole different platform, and it, I don't use it to really promote my books. I don't use it to engage with other authors. Frankly, the idea of that makes me fucking sick. Uh, same thing goes for Instagram. I started an Instagram account. I have zero post. I use it for stories and to look at hot people because when I'm scrolling through TikTok, I'll see someone and I want to look at their Instagram. Their Instagram link is directly in their profile and I can look at their shit because I have the app. Those are the two reasons, the two main reasons why I have an Instagram again. And I can talk to some of the cool people that I like from Twitter on Instagram. However, uh, I've had people try to add me, (laughs) other authors try to add me on there, uh, despite the fact that I have no post. I mean, you can see it in the profile, zero post. And I, I have to delete their request. Oh, I also had someone, and I'm going to throw shade at this person. I'm not going to name them, but a few weeks ago, I made a tweet fully intending to delete it like an hour later. Hey, do you need any of you guys want me to follow or do you want to follow me on Instagram? I'll follow you back just, you know, so we can communicate off Twitter, whatever. And one person was very uh, exuberant about getting me to follow them. Uh, They accepted my follow request on Instagram and they did not follow me back. Uh, What I did was I unfollowed them. I may have blocked them on Instagram and then I muted them on Twitter and they are none the wiser. And it's not that I dislike that person, but it came off as very superficial to me. And I don't really, I, I don't really know that anyone on Twitter that I, I've had mild communication with actually likes me. I, I think that a lot of engagement on Twitter is fake. And you know what I love is when I make a tweet and a woman responds to it and some random guy just likes their tweet. He doesn't follow me. They're not saying anything interesting. They're just saying, yeah, I agree. And some guy just likes their tweet. Or my absolute favorite is when they actually reply. Why? Do you think that you're going to get laid this way? Do you think that this person's going to get on a plane just to come give you a blowjob? You sad fuck. And I'm very careful about how I interact with women on Twitter because of that. Because I hate men who do it. So, for instance, I love... KDB Sweet. She's one of my favorite Twitter accounts. But there are men constantly harassing her on Twitter. So I think very carefully about things before I respond to her tweets. And I often don't. I just like them and move on. Because she's already got a ton of people responding to her tweets. And a a lot of it's guys. 
and they're seeking her attention because she's an erotic account. She's married, she's pregnant, and yet they're still seeking her attention. I don't understand that mentality. I have another friend on Twitter, and she's a legitimate friend. We've been friends since 2019. Her her name is also Katie, and I constantly see men in her replies, and there's this one guy who follows me, and I've muted him, but he is constantly replying just very fake shit in her tweets. And, you know, I guess it's harmless, but I'm very cynical, obviously. And it's interesting because I've had people who are friends of mine who don't want to interact with me very much on Twitter because anytime they do, they have a bunch of people trying to follow them. And a lot of times they're fucking creeps. You know, I have a professor who is very dear to me that uh, we follow each other on Twitter. She was my first follower on Twitter. And she's the most amazing person. And there has been more than one incident involving people who follow me who are being weird towards her because she's a woman. It's fucking disgusting. How did I get on another fucking Twitter rampage on this podcast? Heaven knows. But uh, you can tell I just love the platform. I love having a place to expel brain matter into, which is why I would love a different social media platform that is similar to Twitter without all the promotional bullshit. No people with NFTs. No people trying to get you to buy their dumb book about vampires. No people trying to sell porn. Just a social media platform. No likes or dislikes. Just replies. Not even retweets. It's basically a message board. But like Twitter, where your replies are on a fucking stream and whatever. There are Twitter accounts, and this goes back to the original question, by the way. There are Twitter accounts who literally just post a bunch of hashtags and links to their books constantly. I guarantee you they're not selling any fucking books. It's usually older people, too, who, who think that Twitter is this magical platform. They've just, if they just keep trying, they'll be successful. There's this old American ignorance about just, just keep trying. It'll happen. No, it won't fucking happen. It's one in a million that it'll happen. Especially if you have almost no engagement and genuine engagement. And I don't have a whole lot of engagement beyond a few circle of people because, quite frankly, most people on there are boring as shit and they're just trying to promote themselves in some way. There is a TikTok account And this guy is hilarious, but he just posts memes and he reads them in funny voices. Or he posts screenshots from Facebook and reads them in funny voices because it's old ladies saying stuff like, I broke my hip, I gotta go to the hospital. But he's a musician. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, he's a musician. There are tons of people out there who are just promoting their music. There are so many pretty people 
on TikTok and Instagram, you go to their profile and they say, go listen to my new single. It's 99 cents. And your music is fucking bland and obnoxious. It's not very good. I mean, I say that I I'm I'm, I'm, I'm using this podcast to promote my books and my music. I'm not really any better than them, but you know, in some ways I'm at a disadvantage because I'm not a a super attractive person who's able to just post a selfie with my big, beautiful eyes or my appendages out. Uh, And this could apply to men or women. I'm not singling out either gender or sex. You, you can exude sex appeal and then put a link to your iTunes or your Spotify or your Amazon account. And it's, it's just, it's marketing, but is it marketing? (laughs) I mean, like I said about that, that TikTok account, that person's not selling hundreds of thousands of books as a result of their, their TikTok account. They're just not people are, are, are watching their TikToks because they're attractive and they call that part of their marketing. And you know what? More power to them. If it works, it works. If you sell 50 books after making a TikTok about your dumb book about what I'm not going to say, because then you'll figure out who it is. And I don't need that. I really don't because that person would just the the they make up drama on their account all the time that I look through the replies I look at I don't see it. I don't see any evidence of this drama that they're bringing up. So any legitimate drama that enters their lives, oh. Oh man, they use it to their advantage because the more people that they can get to feel sympathy for them or be like, "Oh, that's too bad." the more people look at their profile, the more exposure they have, and they think that that leads to more book sales. Maybe it does. But today, uh, another thing that relates to Twitter and social media, people will post their sob stories. And then in in the, the replies, they'll say, hey, by the way, I write books. It's fucking ridiculous. All right. Listen, it's been fun. We've had our laughs our giggles, our turtles. I'm going to go watch that Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson thing on Hulu with my wife. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading, happy weekend, happy life, happy marketing. Goodbye.